Hello and welcome to the RPG Academy's Show and Tell. Show and Tell is the show where we like to bring on a cool guest to talk about something cool that they are working on. And today's cool guest is none other than Christopher Gray. And the cool thing that we're going to be talking about is his latest RPG, Highcaster. Highcaster, it's going to expand upon the rules laid out in the Great American Novel, uh, but this time it's going to be flinging players into heroic tales that are the basis of legend. All right. So, uh, Christopher, welcome. Thank you. What a great introduction. I, 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 that game sounds great. <laughs> I, I know, right? I, I should I should start working on it, you know? Okay. <laughs> uh, no. Um, so, no. Uh, like, I, I'm glad to actually get to talk to you. All right. I know you, you've been on the show. You've been on the show before. And then I've, I've followed, especially the Great American Novel. I've, I've followed that. And then it was funny because I, was, I mentioned before we started recording, I recently got into Mutant Year Zero. And I completely missed your last Kickstarter, uh, Temple and Tombs, correct? Yes, and uh, that means I need to do better at marketing. Well, I I missed that because I wasn't in that I wasn't in that realm. So you did your best, okay? Just <laughs> get, all right. So there we go. But now I am. All right. So, but before we really get rolling, you've talked to Michael. You haven't talked to me. All right. So, who is who? Who's Christopher Gray? First, who who are you? Well, I'm just this guy, you know. Okay. <laughs> very 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 informative there. <laughs> Uh, I am a, um, a serial game designer, I suppose. I, I'm an author, a uh, designer, a marketer by trade. And um, I am responsible for The Happiest Apocalypse on Earth, which was my first debut game. And I have been making a bunch of games since, including The Great American Novel, Great American Witch, Temples and Tombs, um, some smaller, smaller titles like Ten Workers United. And um, and I just can't seem to stop. But I, I am sort of uh, sort of really embedded in the indie game development world. Absolutely. I'm pretty sure everybody who's listening has heard a few before. I, I, I will say this, too. I kind of I, so the great American novel for me was great because I, I like RPGs to be silly and everything. But there was something that was just. And maybe you didn't design it this way, but there was just something a little bit highbrow about it that I was just like, I love this so much. So <laughs> anyway, uh, so let's go back then a little bit. How did you get involved then? And in, because you, you said that you're a writer, but then how did that turn to like RPG design? What? Well, it's funny. I, I actually seem to have always done it. I just didn't realize, you know, that there was an industry around it. I I, I was designing games back in the 90s. It was um, a homebrew game that I ran for my my friends in high school and in college, and it was um, a really uh, and I've, I've said this before pretty publicly, but it was a really terrible, terrible system. We it was uh, it was I did it with the help of my friends too, but you know, we did we basically took Palladium Rifts and made it worse. Um, okay, and uh, that was the game we ran for a long time. But I I, uh, I so I was designing games way back as a teenager, and then um, I even designed board games back then. And and then I uh, I lost my game group after a while in college and real life and I I ended up in MMOs for years and I just thought that the industry went away, and I, and I came back at the introduction of fifth edition and realized that it was not only there but had evolved quite a bit in my absence so I jumped back into it pretty much right away, and haven't looked back. That so that's interesting though. So I want to ask you then: Can you talk about what it was like? What did that evolution look like? So you were like making like smash together, make a palladium riff stuff, and then you came back. What was that? What what did that? What was the differences that you saw there then when you came back? It was 
a, a huge difference. I, I was introduced trial by fire by um, I, I was at a con and I ended up playing Bedlam Hall, which is a um, really great PBTA game by Dave Kazay, Monkey Fun Studios. And it was an introduction to what has happened in my absence, because Bedlam Hall is basically the Adams family um, meets Downton Abbey. Ooh, and it's okay. PBTA, and it's it, it, you know it, it it just blew my mind, and I and I was oh 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 this is what's going on now, and then that's when um I I got I got back in, I didn't realize how much it had innovated. That's it, you so all right so I think so that Bedlam Hall I think we have we've got an old TV sitcom we've got a we've got a British soap opera and PBTA this just like checks all the boxes for an indie game all right it does That's and amazing. it's it's hilariously written I, I didn't know that you could have personality when writing a game and um, yeah. in the way that Dave Kazay runs the game at cons is very theatrical and I'm very theatrical and so I realized oh you don't have to worry about you know all of the rules you can just kind of make something and just feed the story it doesn't you don't have to worry about hit points and things like that it just completely broke down my paradigm and i and i just i just loved it and now the games that i run are very much on that end of the spectrum yeah so yeah definitely all of your games they kind of they they just they all feel a little bit different they look they obviously look a little bit different but i definitely they're all doing their own thing so let's talk about let's talk about your new game highcaster because this is also this is I think this is way different than anything you've done before. So, what is the what's the elevator pitch for Highcaster then? Well, uh, well Highcaster is my uh, my fantasy heartbreaker. We all need one, you know. <laughs> but yes. in this case, um, it it is a um, it is about a world that is rising from the ashes of an apocalypse. Um, the gods fell to the earth. The gods were literal stars in the sky, and they literally fell to the earth and destroyed everything. This transcontinental empire. And so you're playing about 500 years later as people are coming out of the wilderness and reforming society. So it's a, it's a fantasy game, but it's not like a go and kill guys and you know steal their stuff kind of game. It's more of a uh, protect your community and build your society and you know stop the, uh, the corruption from invading kind of game. And so it's kind of my answer. It's an alternative to D&D and the murder hobo outlook. Yeah, no, absolutely. Because I think a lot of people are like, I just don't want to just kill stuff and get their loot. Can't, and then they they try to homebrew D and D, and it kind of it kind of works for them. They have fun for it, but it's definitely just seem to have something that you're designing intentionally for. All right. So what about the? Okay, so before we dive too deep into that, the the mechanics of it. All right, you talked about gods falling to the sky. All right, that's got some. That's that's a very classic epic kind of trope what is the what's the can you describe tell us a little bit about the world of highcaster sure yeah the uh the intent i guess the design intent is to uh create stories of legend and mythology at your table so you're, you're not talking about you know uh dragon lance and by the way i love this genre too but my game yes. isn't that genre you're not talking about dragon lance where you're not kind of scrappy heroes finding their way through the wilderness you're playing hercules or you know some, or, or you know, all of the um, the major mythological legends. So the idea is that you're creating your own mythology in the Highcaster setting. So a lot of Highcaster and what it is is entirely up to the table. Now there are trappings, but they're all built around cultures. So you 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 get pretty detailed on what the cultures are in the game. But what 
the borders of those cultures are, how they interact with other cultures, their individual history, what their cities are, how they interact, all of that stuff is developed at your table. So you actually get to create your high caster using uh, these cultural trappings. So would you say then, are the cultures then the the innate conflict in the game then? Is it the clash of cultures then? Yeah, there's there's definitely a layer of conflict with between the cultures as they are all expanding because everybody's sort of at the same time coming out of the chaos and trying to forge their own selves. Actually, I took a lot from history, which I do anyway. I'm a history nerd. But I'm really looking at Europe after the fall of Rome as as individual cultures started coming together, finding their own, coming out of the darkness and then running into each other. And, you know, and particularly what was happening in Britannia. Uh, and and that that's sort of the model I was taking, uh, it, it, you know, where there was a, a recent memory of the Roman Empire before it collapsed. And there's sort of like, a, but that's way gone and there's ruins all around. We don't really know what they mean. We're just trying to figure it out. Uh, so there's a lot of tension as the cultures are expanding. But there's also when the gods fell, uh, they they created corruption on the earth. So the corruption is expanding. And that is where it, I wouldn't call it evil, but it's definitely the, you know chaos and destruction rising from where these gods fell. And that is a more imminent threat. So you're really kind of having to deal with that as well. So would you say then, is there a, is there any elements of, when I think of creating a, a legend, all right, is this, is this, you, is the player creating the legend through the play that they do at the table? Or is there any form of collaborative world building elements involved in this game as well? Yeah, there's a, there's a bit of both. Um, as you're starting the game, you sort of have to, at the table, discern, determine what your shared culture is. Everybody needs to be in the same culture. You maybe weren't raised in that culture. Maybe you came to it from another culture, but now you're all in the same culture. So you're going to have to decide, you know, the the the, the details of that. And there there are tables to help you with that, and there's prompts to help you with that to decide, you know, what well what kind of ruler do we have, and what you know what is, what is our what do our economics look like, and and so that kind of gets developed at the table, but within trappings, like the cultures are pretty well defined. And then you get to decide things like, well, what, what culture is next to us and is there a conflict or what's going on with that? Um, but also you're, you're creating your character emergently and your characters are heroes, textbook heroes. They are contemporary heroes to all of the people around them because most people don't venture out of their safe community. And if you do, you must be something special. And so when somebody arrives from one culture to another, it's a big deal. You know, you don't just kind of wander in and go sit at a tavern. You're like, you know, wow, you came all the way through the wilderness. You know, we need to throw you a feast. You don't go and buy things from a blacksmith. They hand you gifts. You know, you're, you're a hero. And then what you accomplish become the legends. So the, the story emerges and then you, you leave the session with, um, with what would amount to, uh, you know, what you would find in mythology. Interesting. I, for a couple of things here, I love the idea of having all the players start within the same culture. I mean, we always have, there's always the joke about, uh, they all just kind of random elves and dwarves and orcs meet at the tavern and there's some inner party conflict, but then eventually they all get together and they go on their adventure. But I love the idea of everybody is the same. It just, to me, would make it so easy as the game master to just get things rolling in the way that 
Is that was that the intention there? Was it like you wanted to tell a story of the like a singular culture for a campaign? Yeah, yeah. There needs to be buy-in uh, into the setting, and the best way to do that is to have everybody uh, get invested in their community. And so if you have multiple communities at the same table or multiple cultures at the same table, you don't get that kind of investment into your society. And that's the game is built on that as the engine of the game. We have to protect our society from an invader or we have to go and find resources or we have to go. The games turn into things like we need to set up a trade route with this new culture that we ran into. But but there's this corruption in the way. And, you know, we have to. So so you have to be really invested in your society. But if you have a bunch of different societies, you can't do that. You can't be an outsider, really. Yeah, no, I'm getting, I'm getting, I'm getting some, I'm not that, I'm getting just some strong vibes of like civil civilization, oh, like yeah. <laughs> some Sid Meier up in there. Definitely. Um, yeah. So if you, so just so kind of people can get an idea of the world, can you give us an example or two of some of the cultures then? Because you said they're kind of predefined, they're well packaged there. Yeah, yeah, the cultures are pretty well, well defined and, uh, but their locations and their history are not. So you can kind of develop that. So uh, I think the, the the more familiar one would be they're called the Hydoni, and they're they're the remnants of the empire. So after the empire fell, certain pockets of that empire remained, and um, and they were uh, and they still call themselves an empire, even though it's like you know one city is <laughs> surrounded by yeah, a wilderness. <laughs> you know, you got got to you know got to keep that that cultural pride. You know, <laughs> right? And they're the ones that are kind of you know your your pretty typical uh, civilization who thinks they're all that and are always you know overstepping their boundaries and and you know causing political problems. So I, I tend to use them as bad guys, but you know you can play Hydoni. Um, uh, you you have the Rishan who are you know seafaring traders. That's one thing that's interesting about the game and the setting is that the gods were stars and the stars fell. So there are no stars. Uh, and so if you're seafaring, that means you're coast faring and you're going along the rivers and along the coasts. So a lot changed, you know, in the old world. You can't go to other continents. You'll get lost. Uh, it also means there's no afterlife. So a lot of the souls that remain after death just sort of remain or they ascend or they dissipate or they something but there's nowhere to go. So there's a lot of little nuances like that. The Yeah, I'm definitely getting, I'm getting strong vibes. I mean, it's called high cast. I'm getting strong vibes of like real high fantasy stuff. But then the whole idea of like no stars in the sky just like makes nighttime so scary. So, yeah. I mean, oh, lots of opportunities, lots of opportunities there. Yeah. Well, a note on high caster, um, the name high caster actually is, uh, I did a lot of work on etymology because it's an interest of mine. I'm not going all Tolkien here, but okay. I did do a lot of work on etymology because I wanted words that were unique to Highcaster, but that sounded like real words. So that meant going back to the Indo-European shared common language that many languages have, the Proto-Indo-European language. And so I pulled in words that sound real, and some of them are, even in Old English, but that aren't used elsewhere. That way I could have a unique setting and feel. Um, that I could own. Instead of saying elves and dwarves, I wanted to come up with other words. But Highcaster was deliberate because it means actually, um, uh, if you take it back to the etymology, that you have good fortune. Your, your, your lots were cast high. 
And ah. so we are high caster. We are people of good fortune because you wouldn't put an ER on the word. That means you are people of good fortune. And so high caster means it was the high caster empire and they were the people of good fortune. They were the Romans, but then it all fell apart. But the people of high caster still call themselves that because uh, they, they now make their own fortune. And so there's a whole, you know, meaning behind that term. And even one of the uh, cultures uh, who, the, the, the dire wish, um, as actually kind of a, a, a derivative of people of good fortune. And so they actually call that the lands of the fortunate. And, and so there's a whole, it all comes together back into this kind of shared language, this fictional language that I brought in. It's super cool. Hopefully, also high caster. Hopefully, you know that gives like boons to those playing the game. <laughs> may you may you roll high. Yeah. Uh, I want to. We'll talk about the. We'll talk about that that um, the rolling mechanic. But the what? So what would a game of high caster look like at the table? What sort of feeling? Every all right. So let's. You got four people sitting down. They're ready to play. What would that look like? And what sort of feeling are you trying to evoke? Yeah, well, fortunately, you can see some of the actual plays that we did on the beta, uh, so you can kind of get an idea. But the feeling is, um, it's, it's epic. It's the sort of thing that you would feel like when you read the Iliad, or you know, some of the old, um, some of the old mythologies. So you're 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 going to tell a very epic story. These are in any other games, uh, any other game, these characters would be OP. Um, yeah. and, and I used the engine from the great American witch because in that game, witches can level cities <laughs> and that's sort of the game can handle that. And that's, I wanted to translate that over here because you are playing, you know, actual textbook heroes. So the game really needs to feel deliberate and literary. Um, and that not to say that there is an action there is, but the action isn't as important as the choices that are made by the characters. And what their sort of internal conflict is, and how they rise above it, and what you know the hard choices they make. So it, it sounds funny, but it should play like a Marvel movie. Okay. You know, there should be moments of fun. There should be moments of action, but really, it's about the characters and their arc, and and you know they have immense power, and what do they do with that power? And they have immense rep reputation, and they have a, they have uh, uh, many of them have well, they all have. Uh, uh, not oaths, but what did I call them? <laughs> I forget. They basically have an oath that they have to that they have to subscribe to to be good in their in their path. And so so there's all these hard choices. So it should feel you know it should feel a lot like the Avengers. So very dramatic, but at the end very optimistic. Yeah. Then. Yeah, and you know they don't die unless you choose them to be. They they have to have a narrative reason. You know there needs to be a reason for them to die. And that's a choice that you make as a player. So you're not you're not racing the clock, you're not racing the damage, you're not playing attrition. You're playing you know choices and and consequences. It's, it's interesting. So I mean, you've you've said it's kind of epic in nature and heroic. And so I mean, we going back to words. We on epic, you know, we think long, long like text and poems and very spanning like i mean everywhere so is this then are is this a game meant to be played you know one session a couple sections or is this like a the traditional epic campaign what kind of what did you envision like this system to look like in a longer term yeah i was envisioning long-term play uh, because the advancement is there but kind of 
I wouldn't say indefinite, but it definitely could go on for many years if you wanted to. And uh, and it's not going to get there's no the scalability doesn't change all that much because we're we're having narrative consequences instead of you know uh, numbers and and how the numbers work. So we don't like hyperscale like you do you know in fifth edition after level twelve or whatever. It doesn't matter. You're you're already a superhero. So so that is um, so that yeah the idea is you could play indefinitely. Now I I I haven't um, I have played six to eight session arcs. And, uh, you know, they could keep going. Like, I always feel like, okay, well, that's the end of one arc. Let's move on to the next. And then you get just a deeper uh, view of your characters the more that you play and a deeper view of the culture. And, the, and then you start building out your world. And so why not continue to play and build out the wor- world more or play different characters in the same persistent world that you're building and then and then play that out? And just, I mean, you could just th- – this could be the last game you play. I, I mean, okay, okay. that's, that's my <laughs> okay. hope. We're just we're just going right for it, you know. Just say it right now. <laughs> Could be the. I'm just not. I know. So it's it's. I I'm just getting already ideas. I've recently really gotten into uh, games that are all about legacy. Like it's just something that I'm really into right now. Uh, so I'm just almost envisioning this game almost like. You, you've got your characters, and then you have your characters' children and their children. Like that just. That appeals to me. So. Yeah, or you could just play laterally too. I mean, this could totally be its own persistent universe where you're playing over here while your other characters are doing this. You're in another culture entirely. Maybe they converge as certain things. Le- or, you know, have a big game group, you know, and rotate through four groups that are all in a persistent world. But because you're building the world, you can do that. Interesting. I like it. So let's talk then a little bit about the, the system stuff. So can you... So basically, you've got the Great American Novel, that moves over to the Great American Witch, and now Highcaster. What does that evolution look like, and where is where does Highcaster kind of come out of Yeah, it was it, it was iterative. Um, Great American Novel was created because I wanted a sort of a gen, uh, agnostic, generic system for storytelling games. And, and I wanted to be able to tell a story without hit points and armor class. Uh, and that was, it exists all over the indie world, but there really wasn't a, um, sort of a one that would work a chassis that would work for anything. So I, that, that was the design goal of a great American novel. So it was really very narrative focused and I did run it for everything. I ran it for, I started running movies because it was a really great way to align trappings at a table. And I could say, we're going to play the shining and, and just play it, you know? And, and you know, so everybody okay. kind of knows what that means already. So, uh, so I started doing that, and then um, when I did Great American Witch, I was trying to do a, a, a sort of a World of Darkness kind of game, and uh, I realized pretty quickly that Great American Novel was too um, too literary. Like, there was no uh, tension when bad guys entered the room. You know, you would have narrative conflict, but it wasn't like, oh, I'm afraid my character's going to get hurt. That kind of thing that happens that should happen in like a World of Darkness setting. So I had to iterate Great American Witch to to uh, handle things like combat, and what what does that mean when you get hit, or how do you use uh, a, a, a non-narrative transactions like like powers and magic? So that was iterated for that. But when I wanted to do it on a fantasy setting, I realized that it still wasn't uh, like you couldn't do a dungeon crawl that way, because Great American Witch is still interested in the scene and not in the individual moments of the scene. So. So with uh, with Highcaster, I had to kind of iterate it even more in order to handle 
the kind of play that you have in a fantasy setting, but still keep all of those narrative trappings that I wanted. So can you explain then the the core dice mechanics? I, a lot of people, they... They, they, that's something they, they, they care. They, they want to know. All right. Yeah. So how, how does the core dice mechanic work for Highcaster? Yeah. I, uh, one of my design goals is I wanted to use polyhedral dice. Okay. As, as an indie game designer, we all like sixes and, and all of our systems are built on sixes. And I was like, you know what? Uh, we, I need to bring in some polyhedrals for this. Okay. That was a design goal. Actually took a whole lot of time to figure out how to make it work. Given yeah, the chassis. You start involving math and everything. Yeah, well, yeah, and it was, uh, are you, because um, I still wanted to use the spectrum of success that you get with the PBTA model where you roll below a certain number and it's a miss, and then you have um, a success with caveat, and then you have like a, you know, a success with boon. And I, I, I wanted that spectrum, but I wanted polyhedral dice. So I, I had to, I went through a lot of work to try to grind that out. Uh, so it, it is the same chassis, but it's different in that you are using polyhedrals. So uh, like, uh, I live by an airport. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> Somebody's landing. So uh, so like the uh, the games we're familiar with, you roll the 20-sided die uh, to make a check. You're rolling against a threat, which is important in this game because threats, I actually write them out on index cards because it... Um, it helps frame the setting or helps frame the situation and it helps force people to make hard choices. So if you have six threats going on at the same time, you have to start choosing what threat you're going to go after and whatever ones you don't go after start escalating. And so they start clocking and to become, become more difficult or more challenging. So it, you're rolling against a threat. You can't make a move unless you are. And, um, and then you roll the 20 sided die. And so if you get a, 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 a a nine or less, it's a miss um, or a complication. And you might take harm, which I'll get into. Uh, the 10 to 19 is a, is a success with, with a caveat, and then a 20 plus is a success with boon. And there are specific engines that spell that out. Uh, but like uh, some familiar D20 games, you're actually rolling a modifier as well. So okay. instead of adding like a plus four or whatever, a modifier, an arbitrary modifier, you're rolling the modifier with a die. And then that, that. that's a modifier. That is a die pool. So you start adding things to that pool based on what you're doing. So if you have a discipline in it or if you have a talent in it or you have an advantage or whatever, and you try to build that pool as much as you can so that you can pick the highest number as your modifier. So the math the math works out uh, to be pretty similar to D and D actually. But still swinging. But we get to roll more dice. Yeah, but you roll more dice and you get more choices. Nice. I love dice pools, and we were kind of talking about uh, temples and tombs, and that's mutant year zero. And I'm just I, I just want to think that that uh, like you're you're just all about dice pools now. Yeah, like, I love them. They're so fun. <laughs> I know. I just like adding more. There's something. There's just something great about rolling a handful of dice every once well, can in a can you while. imagine rolling a handful of polyhedral dice you have taken it to another level so not even the same type yeah just all of them so like i have three disciplines that i can choose from let's say i'm a, i'm playing a warren which is a warrior i can i can do my archery i can do my uh protection or my no the third thing whatever it is and <laughs> And you can say, okay, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna use my ward, which is a protect, because I'm protecting this person, and I can choose between a four, a six, or an eight. Um, but once I once I pick that die, it, it's it's a, it 
it's it, you, I can't use it again until I rest. So it's sort of a currency. So I'll I'll, I'll use the eight because it's really important. But I, I still can use a six and a four later. And and so that's uh so you have disciplines that you can use. But then you have talents like if if you're good at archery and you're using your bow, you always get a d six as your talent die, and you always get your ability, which are called humors in this game. It, I, yeah, it's okay. So I, that was one of the things I wanted to ask you about is whenever we think of like a f- fantasy fantasy game, there's lots of stuff that um, comes with that. So different combat modifiers. You kind of mentioned the archery, the archery ability, but then also we've got magic systems, all this other kind of things. And but in this game, you've got a you've got heritages and paths. Mm-hmm. So how what are these? And how are they used then to make characters, uh, your a player's own unique character? Yeah, another design goal was to put a lot of character choices in because that's something that people look for in a fantasy game. They want a lot of choices. So yes. Um, so it, compared to even Great American Witch, which also has a lot of choices, this is really you know the sort of thing you would expect. But heritages are you know, other games would call it race. I don't want to use race because they aren't um, you know they're they are completely different types of creatures. Yeah. Um, and, and they're mythological creatures. You can play a unicorn. Uh, they're called equine, but you can play a unicorn. And that unicorn has the natural ability of telepathy and telekinesis. So they can, you know, communicate and they can also throw spears. Um, my word. You can... my, my seven-year-old daughter is going to be all about this. <laughs> yes. I actually put in a, 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 a heritage specifically for my middle school group because there's a girl in there that likes to play animal people. So I put in the best Kirsian, which are beast cursed, and they um, because of the fall, I don't know magic, and there's a bunch of hybrid animals. But you can kind of pick which animal hybrid you are. Uh, and so I brought that in, and I, actually we just started playing. We uh, parentheses you can use this system for Dungeons and Dragons. I have done it a few times. It works great. So okay. if you want to take a D and T module, you can do it. So I've been nice. running. I was running uh, Tyranny of Dragons using my new system. And everybody oh, at the table chose a beast curse. We have a bat, we have a salamander, and uh, I forget the other one. I think a cat. So everybody's playing beast curse. So it's like you know that should be the only heritage. That's the one everybody wants to play. Nice. Just <laughs> this wouldn't be a Tom RPG Academy podcast if I didn't man- mention anamorphs at least <laughs> yeah, one time. Basically. So. Okay, that's that's so that's awesome. So then, but then, so you kind of mentioned the Warren, yeah. but what are so then what are paths? So paths are you know you would call them class in other games, but they're basically it's different. They're they're not occupations, they're not jobs, but they're you know your role in society. And so if you a lot of the design of this game again came from history, and the idea is that you you know you were a knight. That's that's not only what you did, but it's who you were. And and so that's sort of what the paths are, and and they're they can they correlate directly to D and D classes, uh, most of them, but some of them are a little different. Like there's Wicker, which is more of a, a magic user that uses sort of folk magic, as opposed to a magister who uses you know book magic. And there's um, the Bard is really interesting. It's one of my favorite. They're called Scopler in this game, which is pulled again from etymology. Back uh, in the day, Bards came from the tradition of mocking the court during the uh, period of the Anglo-Saxons and they would just sit in the court and mock people. Uh, and that was the only way that you could make fun of the king. 
but they were also the storytellers. And so they would remember stories by creating poems because poems had rhymes and they could remember. So the uh, the scoppler in this game is really what the bard should be. They, they are the spokespeople, yes. And they're also the historians and uh, the record keepers and the musicians and the poets and all of that. It's, it's a really fun path. I, so I've had the privilege of looking at the uh, the preview of the Kickstarter, and I can already say like I want to play to my type, and I just want to play the Sail uh, Othin. So basically, the the descendants of Celestials, but an, a super knight. Oh, it's yeah. be so edgy and cool. Yeah, that's right. You can play an angel. You can play a demon. And the interesting thing about the game is all of the heritages really came from immortals or legendary creatures that lost their immortality when the gods fell. So they had to kind of become mortals and integrate into society. I also love the, I, I saw in here also like you have a heritage that is mortals. Yeah. And the tagline here is just descendants of the survivors of the fall of the stars. Yeah. It's just so evocative. <laughs> yes. It's, Those it's so few cool. that did. Yeah. That's another thing. It's, few survived. So, you know, the population mix is very broad. Like, you don't have too many humans. You have just as many humans as you do angels and demons and fey and they're all in there mixed together because it reset everything everybody died and these are the ones that were left and so you know it doesn't matter what culture you're in your culture has all of the different heritages and and roughly the same mix you know it's a good world when the unicorns outnumber the humans <laughs> yes so so then one of the things that you kind of mentioned in the kickstarter and i don't know if this was if this was just flavorful text but i wanted to grab on it because it was something interesting but the whole idea of you say that you talk about emerging emergent storytelling mm, all right yeah. so what is emergent storytelling and why is it important to highcaster yeah you know arguably all role-playing games are uh but this is really emergent storytelling and that the table does have narrative control over the outcome of things and um that's true with all of my uh, designs, even temples and tombs, which I, I took a little liberty on the year zero design to do that. But um, in in this game, you you get to uh, have narrative control as a player, and so it's really not just the chronicler or the game master that's that's telling you how the story is or what's in the setting. The players too. So the players have a currency called favor, and they can use that for a number of things. One of them is to add another d6 to your pool. You know, if you really need to roll well. Um, you can also use it to go after a conflict or a threat that doesn't exist, which is important because sometimes you'll find yourself hitting something that you already resolved. And this is a, this is a switch to help stop beating dead horses. That happens in games sometimes. Uh, so they can use it for that, but you can also use it to, to introduce a truth into the setting. So it might be, you know, you, whenever you've been a DM or a GM, you might, you, you always get the question is, is there a fill in the blank? You know, and you always mm -hmm. have to answer that question. Well, you can always say, well, if you want there to be, pay me a favor. Yeah. You know, and, okay. and or you can make it even more com complicated than that. Also, if you roll well enough, if you get a 20 plus, you have narrative control over the outcome of what happens, including the threats. So you do get a lot of buy-in. Compared to my other games, you get less. Uh, a great American novel, especially, you have a lot of control as a player, but it's meant to be a storytelling game. Yeah, this is still, for me, when I play, when I run D&D, &D, or even when I run Forbidden Lands, for this example, I still, I like to basically give my players that, I give my players that narrative control, ask them, hey, well, what is in this scene, different things like that, but I definitely, I like, 
I am all about, I love games that are intentional about their design. So I, this is something I like. So I'm glad that it's something that is built into the cake here. Yeah, so. it's an important element to the system. Um, and, and in fact, it's iterated to the point where I'm comfortable that this this iteration, this particular system can work in any D20 genre. Um, I wouldn't want to use it for, you know, something I would use Great American Novel for. And I really wouldn't want yeah. to use it for something like Great American Witch because there's there's other mechanics that do better. But but this one could – anything you use D20 for, you can use this for. And, in fact, I'm going to – we'll probably get to this, but I'm going to – at the certain a certain level of backing, I'm going to release the rules as an SRD so people can take it and make their own games. Oh, that would be incredible. So, all right, so you mentioned it. So here we go. All right, Kickstarter. Yeah. Okay. All right. So – can you describe before we talk about pledge levels real quick what's the what's the i know the kickstarter as of recording right now it hasn't launched right. but what's your what's your what's your goal right now for the kickstarter uh i'm only looking for $1200 which will recoup my costs to point to this point and uh that is uh to- totally reasonable i think we'll we'll i'm not going to you know worry too much about that but i think the um uh, the question is, is how, how much can we raise and what do we do with that money? So uh, the $1,200 will just, it's going to get, you're going to get the game as is. And, and, and the game is ready. It's um, going through editing uh, right as we speak. Um, although I, I did take some notes last night and I think I, there's some things I want to change, but it, it's there. Um, and and uh, Alan Barr, who is the publisher of Galenite Games, is, is going to contribute and write an adventure for it. So there's some things we're doing already that that may, means it's ready. But there's some if we get more art, there are other things we want to do. Okay. So one of the other things that I think is kind of uh, interesting, I we've seen some other uh, we've seen some other Kickstarters like this too. Is uh, you're doing your fulfillment through drive through. All right. Can you explain the pledge level then and how this works with drive through? Yeah, uh, we're doing something interesting. This is the model that we used for the Great American Witch, and there's a reason for it. But I'll explain what it is, and then I'll explain the reason. Um, okay. We have one pledge level, and that is $15, and you'll get the game. Uh, $15 will give you the digital version, um, and then it will also get you, give you the uh, coupon code that you can use to order a hardcover copy from DriveThruRPG. Uh, so that means you can order it at cost. And that means then you are still going to be out more money, uh, but it'll only be the cost of the book and the shipping. Uh, and so that, that, that's going to be a nice boon for you because the discount's great. It'll, it'll market for much more than what you're paying. Now, uh, that's an interesting model because a lot of models are, and I've done them before. I, it depends on the project, on which model I use, um, where you know, you're know you backing it and you get the game for what you backed it for. But this way, we kind of put the uh, the control in your hands and how much you want to buy into it. And it takes a lot of the risk out in terms of fulfillment. Uh, we're at a time because of the um, supply chain as a result of the pandemic and other factors that it's very difficult to, uh, uh, to, to confirm you'll get certain things at certain times. So this kind of puts fulfillment into the hands of the backers. So like, you know, if, mm-hmm. you, if you want the game, great, order it. You'll get it through drive through It'll be fulfilled through your normal means. Um, if you just want the digital, cool. If you want the digital and you want to use the coupon can- code later, great. Uh, it just kind of gives you the control and it bypasses a lot of those uh, supply chain concerns. 
yeah, those are definitely like, things are volatile right now. Yeah. Just so I, it's absolutely just in my my day to day my day to day job. I mean, it is it's hard to get anything now. I'm waiting two months for something that I used to be able to get in a week. So I definitely feel that pain uh, very much. So yeah. also, I will say this too. I think a lot of uh, and you're you're more in the business side of things, but this is just what I've seen personally. Is that I feel like a lot of more people that I know and friends are a lot more willing now to, uh, they just kind of want a lot of them want digital stuff. So there's kind of a, a before like, I almost think like even like three or four years ago, you'd say a PDF only. People are like, well, I don't want a PDF. I want a book. But now it seems like more and more people want those the the digital copy even more so a lot than the actual book. Yeah, we. I, I think we're still seeing a strong desire, especially if the cover is nice and the layout is good, of people who want uh, the print copy. Uh, the uh, the the biggest thing that I think I'm seeing on this front is that um, people want the product, and you know I think especially as a creator, I'm seeing um, a lot of people who are running out of patience with Kickstarter. Like I, I put in a pledge i it funds and then i get the game a year later you know that used to be kind of the norm mm-hmm. and and but i think there's some patience that's running out for that it's like look i just want the game you know and i don't want to play this kickstarter game where i have to wait and look at all the updates and blah 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 and a lot of people in my circle are serial kick kickstarter backers and so i, I if you're like me i i'd have lost track like i'll get a game and i yeah. like i do not remember this game you know and here it is and so sort of that that momentum of, of excitement that you get about a game is gone by the time you get the game. So one of the things that I want to do with this model is get the game in your hands as quickly as possible. Just that you have it and you can start playing it and you can stop playing that dance that that takes things into 2022. Yeah. I think for for better or worse, I Kickstarter's definitely we've seen it just it shifted from a crowdfunding tool to really a pre-order sort of sort of tool so i want to ask you then as a creator have you your previous kickstarters is this a is this a new thing where you've 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 got this almost complete product for highcaster is this how you did your other kickstarters or you've have you kind of changed yeah except for my first uh i learned in my first that i want to be as done as possible because as a creator i work very poorly under pressure uh, okay. I want the freedom to be able to put the project aside and come back to it so I can work on other things. Or I, I tend to percolate a lot during my design process. And so I, I can't just sit down and produce a game in a given period of time. So I prefer the method of just getting it done first and then and then recouping my costs. Okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's. I think it's super cool. Um, I want to then talk a little bit then about another business thing that you kind of did. Was all right. So first off, you have an amazing cover. Thank all you. Right? It look it it really does. It I love good covers and I love good uh, I love good font and your title is really good font. So cool. <laughs> yeah. So I will say this though. Uh, so then you're kind of you're you're doing a little bit of mix here with commissioned art and then open license art. Yeah. So could you kind of explain how this for anybody? who's thinking about doing a Kickstarter, uh, a, a new designer, and they're they're trying to figure out what's what's the best uh, uh, situation for them. How does open license art work then? The um, Well, there's a lot of ways to do it, and it depends on the project. Um, but it, first and foremost, art is incredibly important to any role-playing game project. 
People buy more because of the art than because of anything else. And that is because the art communicates the, um, the art communicates the, uh, tone and feel and, and the way the game is supposed to be played and viewed. So talking about, uh, talking about open license art then. So specifically for you, for this project, uh, what, what, why choose open license art then? Well, this project right now is in the, the beta, well, almost final rules, and it's been laid out, and there is a lot of open license art in there, but it's not going to stay that way. It's kind of, some of it's a placeholder. Some of it might stay, some of it might go and get replaced with commission art, depending upon what happens with the Kickstarter. If we get more funding, I'll probably get more commissioned art. But the art that I found in the open source libraries were great and very yeah. representative of what I was after. So they might just stay, and that's, I think, okay. But the cover was commissioned, and that was because you have to have your own cover. I mean, I just believe that you have to have your own cover. Um, I have seen my art that I've chosen in other games, and that's fine. But if I saw another game with my cover, that would not be fine. <laughs> yes, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, also, I just love, like I said, I'm a sucker for... I'm a sucker for like conflict between not this isn't conflict, but just you have got angels and demons on your cover. It's just I love yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, that one was um it was hard to conceptualize in the cover. I was I ended up I, I was in uh, Shaw's art did the art. Um S H O Z capital A R T. And they were, you know, you know, what do you want on your cover? <laughs> and I I had a hard time conceptualizing because there's so much to Highcaster. And I ultimately got inspired by that scene in uh, Return of the King when Gandalf comes over the ridge. Or no, and that was Return of the King, Two Towers. Yeah. When Gandalf comes over the ridge at Helm's Deep. And I was like, that's the moment I want. And he says, okay, it's, got it. It, it, it. Yeah, there's definitely, you get the light behind the characters. Yeah. Uh, the, also, the wings of the angel and the demon are both there. So you have this almost like a... There's like a, a, a almost a symmetry to it. Yeah, yeah. I had to add flying cool. to the demon as an ability after the artwork came in. You're like, thank you, cover artist, <laughs> give me more work. So, all right. So then, uh, I guess I mean we kind of we talked a lot about the different Kickstarter details. Is there anything else you think people need to know about the Kickstarter? Then, when does it launch? It's going to launch on uh, Friday, which is the ninth. Okay. Of June, July, July. We're in July, July 9th. Nice. We just committed the cardinal sin. I, I did it. I, I walked us right now. We committed the cardinal sin of dating our podcast. Yes. So okay. it's, it's just an, <laughs> yes, we did. Um, but it is a Kickstarter. So um, we, and it's going to be short. I, I, I think it's scheduled for three, maybe four weeks. And that's, um, that's because on the, on the business side, we don't see a lot happening in between the two bookends of a Kickstarter. So it doesn't yep. make a lot of sense to let, let them drag on too long. Now you get everybody who's super excited at the beginning and then everybody who's a little bit nervous, but then they, they hit the heart button to wait for the last 48 hours. Right. You know, they're going to do it anyway. You might as well just do it right at the beginning. <laughs> so I know that's super cool. I, I, I mean, it looks great. I am I'm super excited for it because it's it is I love narrative games and I'm on record many times saying that on this show so uh, I am definitely going to be checking this one out so I guess before we wrap up uh, is there anything else that we haven't talked about Highcaster you feel like you've got to get off your chest 
I think we've covered all the big points. I mean, the big thing about it is it's 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 designed to be uh, for those players that might be frustrated with D20 fantasy games because they can't tell the story they want to tell. And it, and it works for uh, any fan. I mean, if it's a fantasy adventure, you can run it with Highcaster. And in fact, the, um, uh, the SRD that I'm building, completely cross-compatible. Um, there's a lot we could go into on the mechanics, but, uh, you know, we only have so much time. Absolutely. People can just back the game and get the mechanics. <laughs> <laughs> there you go, folks. Okay. Well, all right. Well, Christopher, thank you so much for coming on the show and chatting uh, with me. I always love talking to people. So this is always, it's always so cool. Uh, so also social media plugs, where can people find you? I think the best place to find me is at uh, Christopher.world which is my website. I have the whole world of Christopher's. Okay. Wow. Nice. And uh, I keep everything there. Um, I'm on Twitter at Gray Author. That's Gray with an E, the proper spelling. <laughs> and I'm, I'm there I never know. on Facebook. What, very, okay. Very, very cool. And yeah, I definitely see you popping around on Twitter. So there you go. Yeah. All right. So uh, with, that, with that all out of the way, Christopher, thank you so much for uh, joining me today. It's been a lot of fun talking. Uh, and with that, folks, uh, we will close it out like we always do. Uh, well, first, I got to say, definitely, yeah, don't forget, check out Highcaster on Kickstarter. We'll include all the information in the show notes. Uh, but as always, don't forget, if you're having fun, you're doing it right. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the RPG Academy podcast. We do this show out of love for the hobby and the desire to be ambassadors, welcoming more people into this community. All of our website content will always be free to use and utilize. But there are expenses related to the show. And if you enjoy what we do here, then please consider supporting us in some way. You can do so as simply as rating or reviewing us on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. If you're going to purchase anything through Amazon or DriveThruRPG, consider using our affiliate links first, and then we'll get a small percentage sent back to us. You can do a single direct donation through PayPal using the paypal.me slash the RPG Academy or consider joining our Patreon campaign at patreon.com slash the RPG Academy. And for a donation as low as $1 a month, you'll get access to lots of extra goodies, including bonus minisodes, invites to monthly one-shot games, one-sheet adventures, and more. Please consider following us on Twitter and Facebook or join our Discord, where we like to try to keep the conversation going with our fans as best we can and are always looking to talk and chat more. Or do none of that. Just continue to listen and enjoy our show. Because honestly, that's enough. Thanks. And remember, if you're having fun, you're doing it right. We'll see you next time. The music used for our intro and outro is Fly a Kite by Spectacular Sound Productions, used under the Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike License.